Hello, and welcome back to the Security Metrics Podcast. I'm Jen Stone. I'm one of the principal security analysts here at Security Metrics. Very good show today. But before we hop into that, I wanted to let you know, I'm going to be at HIMSS um, with Heft. If you've seen the, the news podcast that we put out, you know who Hef is. He is great. He and I are not just going to be there. We're going to be at the booths. Come talk to us. Have a good time. Let me know if you're going to be there, what time you're going to be there. We'll arrange to meet you. Also, uh, I'm going to be at Transact and at Wesis, just dropping in towards the end of Wesis conference. Any of those, just let me know, and I would love to connect with you, have a coffee, whatever. So also, today, Cannot be more excited about this guest because he's going to talk to us about leadership and cybersecurity. I think it's very important topic. His name is Christian Hyatt. Christian is the CEO and co-founder of Risk360, where they help organizations assess, build, and certify security and privacy programs. Based on his experience as an entrepreneur and from working with hundreds of organizations as a consultant, Christian brings a unique perspective to cybersecurity, privacy, and what it takes to build a successful business. Also, keep an ear out for the five CISO archetypes ebook that he's going to talk about. It's kind of towards the end of the program. Christian, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, we're we're talking about leadership, and I think that leadership in security in general. Um, doesn't get the attention that it, that it needs. Uh, and in considering who do I talk to about leadership and security, your name just was was top of the the heap for me. And so I'm really excited to to talk about this with you. And you came back with some some conversation, you know, potential for me, saying security is all about business objective alignment. And I thought that was such an important concept. I wanted to lead with that. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Yeah, I think. When a lot of people think about cybersecurity, the natural thing to think about is the technical stuff, either the compliance side of the business or pen testing or the latest tools and technology, Um, because that's just the way most of us are grown. We grow up through the business thinking about those technical concepts, being subject matter experts. And then because now I'm a CEO at Risk360, which is a security uh, advisory firm, and I'm interacting with security leaders as a consultant, I have this kind of new perspective where I'm realizing what's happening at the executive level, the types of conversations they're having are business-focused, which ultimately drives security initiatives. And that's a piece of perspective that I wish I had earlier in my career because there is a reason that businesses decide to spend money on security or adopt security policies. And I, I narrowed it down to really three primary reasons, and we can dive into these if you like, but yeah. it's really t- to reduce risk. So companies want to reduce risk, stop and mm-hmm. reach, protect their uh, their reputation. That's kind of the most intuitive reason that companies want to do it. And, and I think most security people operate off the assumption that that's the primary business objective, but it's not. The the second reason companies often want to do security is for cost or complexity reduction. And you can think about this in the world of uh, a really heavily regulated company that has to comply with SOC 2 and ISO and PCI. And all of their engineers are bogged down with constant audits mm-hmm. and they can't actually do any product development. So in that case, maybe the executive wants to reduce complexity. Uh, and that's maybe where you come in and you harmonize all your security frameworks and you make the regulations a little easier. And then the third reason is revenue generation. Um, if, especially me, we have a lot of high growth technology clients. And the primary reason that they want to do security is because they want to instill trust with their customers and prospects. And that sends them down a path of, of obtaining security certifications or building out security programs. 
So at the executive level, that's the stuff they're thinking about. How do I uh, navigate this market, serve customers, protect my brand reputation? And that trickles down to security objectives and initiatives. And as a security leader, if you understand, if you're in the head of your executive and what they want to do and why, then you can speak that language and hopefully you know, drive better security. One of the things that, that I think is a, a huge gap that I see is that lack of understanding of what drives uh, the, the security lead leader or um, a lack of understanding of the language that they're using because mm-hmm. it tends to be business focused. And like you said, uh, security efforts are not, should not be IT um, focused, IT led. They should start uh, with the leadership. How, how do you bridge that gap between the C-level and the people who are actually implementing the security posture? Mm-hmm. I think as a security leader, a lot of times you are the, the translator between those two audiences. Um, because at the executive level, they often have a, a general understanding of risk and why security is important, but they don't have a deep understanding of that. They're, they're more concerned with some of the business objectives that I just laid out. Whereas the security practitioner, uh, their mission is to implement security. And sometimes there's, they don't understand the why behind that. So one of the things that I try to do is tell each party the why. So if I'm talking to the executives uh, and, and there maybe there's challenges that they don't understand or risks that they don't understand, I'll explain to them the why behind it. So what's the risk? Why do you care about this from a business perspective? What are the potential negative consequences or the positive consequences of implementing security? And translate it into their language. And the same thing with my team. So if I bring the team down, I try to give them all those perspectives and say, hey, here's what the executives are thinking and why they're thinking that. Here's what the customers and prospects are thinking and why they're thinking that. And that's that's why we've chosen to prioritize these initiatives in this way. And a lot of times just explaining the why um, gives people enough information to go do the how enthusiastically. And it takes a little time as a leader, just taking the time to step back and explain the why. Because sometimes we start at step Z instead of mm-hmm. step A uh, when we're trying to tell people what they need to do. And for me, I'm all about context. So if someone can give me the why, I'll, I'll enthusiastically go after the mission. But if I'm a little lost as to why we're even doing this, I'm, I'm a little less enthusiastic about it. So for me, that's what I try to do and try to translate back. I absolutely agree. I, I know when I was um, earlier in my career, when I was the hands-on person doing, you know, starting on the help desk and then going to, to you know, doing the, the actual hands-on keyboard work that, that's involved in IT and security. If I didn't know why, I would often forget that there was a how that had to be done. Like putting those things together in my head, if there's just a list of rote things, and I think this is common to a lot of people, what are your, what am I supposed to do today? Uh, if I don't have context for it, then then you're kind of leaning on checklists that may or may not be accurate. You, you're you're missing things that that perhaps, um, if you understood the context as you're going about doing your work, you might put these ideas together in a cohesive way rather than a a checklisty way. And yep. I, I see this in in customers that are trying to do compliance without understanding that it serves security. Do you see that as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's so easy to fall into the trap of like the compliance check the box thing, just because like my mission is to get SOC 2 or PCI or whatever. So you do whatever you need to do to make that happen as a compliance analyst. And sometimes you don't zoom out and say, well, can I do this in a way that would actually reduce risk or there would be other net gains or fulfill other missions that are going on at the same time? A classic example uh, of this for me is policies. Uh, 
So uh, pretty much every security framework and every compliance framework requires that you have security policies. Now, if you're treating that like a checklist, like you'll just download some policies off the internet, you'll uh, adopt them, put a change log on it, and, and hand it over to the auditor and say, look, we have policies. But if you're thinking about it from an organizational change perspective, uh, the way I describe policies is they're the written articulation of management's intent and strategy. So if you can grab those policies, that's that's your opportunity as a compliance analyst to take that to leadership, get in front of leadership and say, hey, look, tell me what you want to do and why you want to do it. And it'll make them think about it, write it down, and then you can help them go carry out their mission. So little things like that, I think it's a huge missed opportunity as a compliance person if you just treat it as a check the box. Because maybe you can escalate it and, and get some visibility with leadership. Maybe you can drive some organizational change. There's a million initiatives that might be going on, and maybe you can help serve those purposes too. So uh, I, I agree with you. There's definitely a huge gap. But I would encourage all the analysts to use those compliance initiatives as, as opportunities to, to serve the business beyond that. 100% agree with you on that. One of the the things that I I personally I I guess struggle with is when somebody asks me, "Do I have to have this in order to be compliant with this?" because it cuts out the conversation about security. So, sure, there are ways to let's let's take P PCI for example because it has a very good framework on if you do these things, you will be PCI compliant and and then you'll be able to continue processing checks. I mean, excuse me, processing the credit cards, right? So, and that's the goal of, of many um, merchants is I just want to be able to take credit cards. What do I need to be able to do to get this, this um, attestation that lets me do that, right? And so uh, sometimes on the internet, you'll see people say, well, well, compliance isn't security. And that is true. But as security professionals, if we go in and do a compliance assessment and we see look, you're going to be compliant, but you're leaving this entire network unprotected. The, I think it's incumbent on security professionals to say, all right, here's what's going to, to bring you into compliance, but also, do you want to be able to do business? Because these are the, the um, computers that allow you to actually do business with somebody. You can't even take a payment if you get ransomware on these systems. So maybe you should look at your whole ecosystem and look sure. at it entirely from a security perspective. But um, I, I don't think that everyone looks at it li like that. I think there's unique opportunities to make compliance folks look like heroes in certain uh, areas. And, and, and a good example, this happens all the time, is we'll be doing an assessment and uh, and we're talking about gaps. Or you have this gap and, and they say, well, like, like you said, do I have to do this or what should I do about this gap? And then we get into this conversation about uh, the why behind the gap. Because you can do the minimum standard, maybe it'll pass the audit. But I always encourage compliance and security folks to start thinking about the business objective. And because we serve high growth uh, tech clients, typically our clients are, are growing super fast. So they might be going from 100 people to 500 people over the course of a year or two. So when we're talking about things like network segmentation or access controls or different tools that solve problems, I'll ask them, I'm like, okay, well, you want to uh, solve access Sure, you could do a manual user access review, and that would that would pass muster for the audit this year. But what about when you're onboarding and offboarding 100 people or 200 people per year? Like, do you want to do centralized access and identity management? And is that going to help you scale your business? Is that really going to cut costs in the long run? We start having these types of conversations. Now we're a little bit outside. We're definitely outside the realm of compliance. We're into the realm of security and also into the realm of does what I'm doing from a technology perspective support the scale of my business? 
now that person who thought they were having a compliance conversation is talk, having a strategic conversation about how to support the business. And that's something that they can take to their executives. They can say, hey, uh, to be PCI compliant, we have to manage access. But I'm thinking that we need to really invest in some technology here because we're going to go from 100 to 500 people over the next year and we have to do X, Y, Z. And, and I think those are very meaningful kind of mental shifting conversations away from compliance into supporting the business. And you can you can gain a lot of political uh, capital as a compliance analyst or a security manager if you can have those kind of conversations. Right. And, and on the other hand, I see a lot of people who are in compliance who get very pedantic um, with the rules and don't actually take the time to understand the systems or how they work together um, for, a, for a customer and understanding the, the risk base for all of them, understanding some threat modeling for those systems. Um, and so y- you miss the opportunity to really do something positive uh, for the actual security stance, not just the, the compliance efforts. Yep. This episode is brought to you by the Security Metrics 2022 Guide to PCI Compliance. I personally helped with this guide and can highly recommend it to anyone going through PCI compliance. It goes through what the the requirements are and then tells you in the real world what they mean, how to meet them, recommendations from um, auditors. So uh, it's a great resource to get the fundamentals of PCI compliance. You can get it on our website, securitymetrics.com. There's always like this balance when you're the auditor. So so we do external audits sometimes and... uh, I guess there's different schools of thoughts on this. You have one type of auditor that is very, uh, like, I'm an auditor. Uh, I don't advise. Like, I go by the framework. Um, and and I, I think there's some value in that mindset. I can see that. Uh, and then there's the other type of auditor, which I, which I think is probably the preferred type, is when you're more collaborative. Like, you still have a job to do to be an auditor and be mm-hmm. independent and all that stuff. But you can also, like, say, hey, uh, I have the benefit of seeing 100 clients uh, you yeah. only work in your one environment, and this is what I've seen work well for them and some of the pitfalls. And that's where auditing can turn into a huge value add because we right. have the superpower, the secret sauce of seeing hundreds of these environments where most of our clients see one. Right. And there's like a special piece of knowledge that we have because of that. I know that one, one um, like you said, people who don't like the collaborative type, the, their idea is that, well, if you're too collaborative, then you can't tell tell the customer no or you can't fail them. But I don't find that at all. What I find is if you're being collaborative and really having conversations about the environment together, you don't have to tell them that they have failed something. They see it at the same time that you see it. We all discover together that there is something that's missing. And then it gives them the opportunity to to meet that gap rather than it it being a hostile kind of a relationship. 100%. Yeah, if it it becomes like you don't want to be the gotcha auditor. Like they shouldn't be finding out something for the first time on the audit report. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It should be like over the course of conversations, you're probably arriving at conclusions together. And then they feel like, okay, I've learned something here. We had a miss. Let me go fix it. Yeah. And and that's typically a lot more positive experience than, uh, you know, you got an audit report and you're like, what? There's a finding yeah. here? I don't know where that came from. I disagree. So that's like one of those techniques that auditors have to kind of manage, I guess, over yeah. the course of their career. I, I agree. I agree. And I think that in the end, um, the general security of an organization is elevated by that type of approach. but Because um, you'll get people calling you all throughout the year saying, because you, you earn that trust, right? We together have found out something. When we found out something was negative, we together set reasonable timelines for it to be fixed in order to meet you know, the, the, the goals of the organization. 
And then you'll get a random call in the middle of the year saying, hey, I'm thinking about this. Is, is that crazy? Or is this a good direction to yep. go with this? I love yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. You get a call from your clients and they're, they're wanting a little bit of advisory. You know, the, the other way I, I'm thinking about this right now for the first time. The other way that I think auditors can help uh, clients is helping them see around the corner or communicate with their leadership team. Because often um, when I come out to do audits, the person that you're interacting with most is usually a manager level or maybe even an analyst level. Um, yeah. and, and their task is getting you audit evidence, setting up walkthroughs, helping with the day-to-day. And, and you might tell them that there's findings along the way and, and they'll ingest that. But then what, what I've had happen to me is they won't escalate it themselves. You know, so by the time the real decision maker, the real executive sponsor of the project learns about the finding, they feel surprised. And then as the auditor or the security assessor, I'm, I'm like, I told you this a month ago, like yeah. that never made it to you. So I find a lot of the value that I can bring to the table is helping the compliance team navigate their own internal politics Yes. and say, hey, look, this is probably not going to be received well without the context. Let's schedule a meeting and like just tell them what's up so everybody knows and and, and that's like one of those experience things too. Like it, it isn't right. our job necessarily to help them navigate their own communication pathways. But if you're really good at your job and you're a compliance craftsman, or, and, and you can you can start thinking about those things as well. I think that comes back to what you originally said, where if you know the language and the intent and the focus of the business people, then then you can serve those needs better as a compliance and security person. But if you are at maybe uh, more of a starting part point in your career, may have had less opportunity to communicate with these people, you don't know that language. You don't you don't know how to to share bad news or or get budget for things that you know are an issue. Yep. And so, at, like you said, when you've seen uh, hundreds of organizations and different uh, issues that they the challenges that, that they that they meet. Then you can help actually give them phrases and 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 concepts that set them oh, yeah. up for success with that conversation. So, so at Risk Three Sixty, we have this. One of our core values is craftsmanship. And I and I uh, I was listening to YouTube, and there's this book I think by a guy named Stephen I think Pressfield is his name. Probably have that wrong, but it's called Going Pro. And one of the things that uh, when I when we talk about the core value of craftsmanship, we talk about how anything is interesting when you get into the nuance. So most people don't dream of being a compliance professional, typically, but you get into it and then you get really good at it. You get into all the nuances, all the chess pieces that have to be moved, helping people navigate internal politics, knowing all the frameworks, combining that with security. And all of a sudden it gets really interesting. Mm -hmm. And this book, Going Pro, talks about that. It talks about how, um, and and we should all take this to heart, how you're not just a compliance auditor, like you're a professional and you should yeah. take being a professional, a craftsman that's creating a work of art. And if you think of that uh, for anything that you work on, but especially in compliance, when you walk in the door, you kind of, you kind of, you know, got a chip on your shoulder. You're like, all right, I'm going to help these people navigate this. I have my eyes open. I'm listening. I'm trying to be empathetic. I'm going to make sure my writings are tight. And then all of a sudden you're a rock star. You're great. You're a trusted yeah. advisor. You're thinking about business stuff. You're not just the, you're not Jen, the PCI auditor. You're Jen, yeah. the person they call when they're thinking about making a big decision just to get your Absolutely. perspective. And that's when this job becomes fun Yeah. because you're like, well, let me think about the other hundred envir- environments I've seen. Let me think about how maybe I want to navigate this. And, and you become really valuable to every organization you work with. So I don't always meet that, but that's kind of what I aspire to do for any client that I'm working with. And for our team, I always kind of give them that pitch too. And I'm like, think of it this way. Cause like, that's when it becomes fun. 
Yeah, I and it is the most fun job I've ever had. And like you said, I don't I don't meet that for every client. But what I find is if I don't, there's there's some kind of interpersonal thing that I think that customer would be better served by the personality of one of my colleagues. And then I'll say, look, let's uh, let's give you someone who maybe understands your background and speaks your language a little better. I always would love to be that person, and I try to meet that. But I recognize that I'm not that for every oh, every yeah. person that I meet. Hundred percent. I've I've told. Uh, my team, I, I've, I've been fired off projects many times. Not 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 a ton, but it has 100% happened, especially early in my career where it was just like not a great personality match. I have this, I remember this one time where um, we had a, 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 what I'll call negatively, a babysitter. You know, it was one of those clients, they just have a guy sitting in the room with you all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they just, you know, they just want to monitor the auditor. And I had a brand new staff with me who was new to the company. And I was kind of telling them a little bit about the company. I was like, oh, this is a great career uh, decision. This is a great company. And here's why X, Y, Z. And I didn't think twice about the fact that this person sitting in the room with me was overhearing this, but it turned out that they had some major turmoil going on in their company. So he kind of took it offensive that I was bragging about my company when his company was having some major problems that we were were just unaware of. So uh, needless to say, come to the end of the project, he, he, basically said, I don't want Christian back on the project because he took that offensively. And that was the first time I had ever heard about it. It really caught me off guard. So whenever we have uh, team members that, you know, they're, they're great team members, but maybe they'll have a client that, you know, for whatever reason, it just isn't a good fit. And I always tell them that story. I'm like, look, man, everybody gets kicked off a project at some point in your career. If you're in it long enough, you just have to like put your ego away do what's right for the client and do exactly what you said. Maybe, maybe find someone who is the good fit to go serve yeah. that client. So, yeah. I, I so know if you've ever been kicked people, off a client, so okay about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are people who, who approach things in a very different way than I do. And some people uh, want something very, very different and I'm okay with that. So uh, I, what I like um, about our conversation and when I listen to your podcast, um, which, which you put out every week, that's uh, that's a yeah. lot. Is yeah. is that you really do talk about the C level, the um, the the organizational leadership, um, and I think you have a, an ebook on uh, five CISO archetypes. I would love yep. to hear more about that. Yep. So uh, my podcast is Tuesday Morning Grind. The, our spin on it is we talk to security leaders and executives uh, every week. So. I'm in the position where I'm just listening. I'm trying to learn from these folks. So it's pretty humbling because these folks just have like crazy lessons and, and things to teach. Um, so I think we're about 70 episodes into that as of this recording. And uh, from listening to all those folks, and then we've done like a thousand security assessments, we started noticing these patterns um, in terms of personality types of security leaders. And then on top of that, the business objectives that were driving security initiatives. So for fun, uh, I put together a lunch and learn. We do like a weekly lunch and learn uh, at Risk360. So I put together a lunch and learn saying, hey, here are the five CISO archetypes that I've identified. Here are the three business objectives and here's common org structures to support those. And it was pretty well received because I think our, our consultants were like, man, I can think through my clients and see how like this executive fit this personality type and how that influenced them to behave in this manner. So uh, 
I ended up writing an ebook on it. And what the ebook is, it talks about the five CISO archetypes. I put together um, a self-assessment. So if you're kind of curious which which leadership style you might have, and I also put together an assessment so you can kind of review your uh, organization and see what your business objectives might be. And then also like a, a diagram, a racy diagram of potential org structures based on those two things. Packaged it up and it's all free. So if anyone Googles that, they can probably find it and download it. And, and have all they that can stuff. find it on the Risk 360 website? Yeah, we have a resources page where there's tons of free videos and templates and downloads that you can have. Uh, so if you, if you either Google five CISO archetypes or go to our resources page, they can see all the material there. Excellent. Well, um, I sure appreciate your time today coming and talking to me about uh, leadership. I think I think leadership as a um, compliance expert, as the as the third party, is sometimes overlooked. Uh, but in my experience, it's one of the most important aspects of a successful uh, third party assessment. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. I appreciate it. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for watching. To watch more episodes of Security Metrics Podcast, click on the box on the left. If you prefer to listen to this podcast, it's available on all your favorite podcast platforms. See you on the slopes.